Well, the, the one principle for all lawyers seems to be what's called the adjournment game. And if they can, if it's not to their best interest to have a case heard, they will use a variety of techniques to make sure the hearing doesn't take place for an extended period of time. What's happening is the lawyers don't want it heard. So mm-hmm. they're telling the court, I'm not available here. I'm not available there. And we're not available uh, right up until the end of June. We're not available. And then, of course, the, the courts take July and August off at the Court of Appeal level anyway. They take uh, July and August off. And then they'll say, well, we're not available here. And these lawyers will work with each other. So if you've got four or five lawyers on the other side, they'll talk with each other. And one lawyer will say, I'm not free here. And the other lawyer will say, I'm not free there. And next thing you know, as uh, is happening in your case, you can't get it down for a hearing until sometime in the fall. Thank you, Tanya. We are always so delighted to have our good friend, David Lindsay, joining us on the Empower Hour. David has been involved in freedom issues for over 30 years, and he's the author of several books, including The Annotated Criminal Charging Procedure in Canada. He is the co-founder of the Common Law Education and Rights, or CLEAR for short, and many of you will recognize him as a passionate freedom fighter. He has recently made available for purchase a 15-part webinar series entitled Common Law Made Clear. David also teaches about the Coronation Oath, which is the original and longest-standing constitutional document that is crucial to restoring our rights and freedoms by undoing any legislation that is in violation of the oath. We are so pleased that David can check in with us regularly to share his wealth of knowledge with us. David, welcome to the Empower Hour. We're so glad you can join us once again. Yeah, thank you very much. It's wonderful to see everybody again, too. Absolutely. Super. Thank you, Heather. Welcome, David. You're oh, you're just day. such a delight to have on the show. I love it because you're thank so you. well-versed on so many different topics. And uh, so here today, we're, we're going to actually be talking about one of your favorite topics. But first, we're going to just do a little bit of an update again on uh, the legal action with Action for Canada and uh, Rocco. And so uh, in the, um, well, it'll be on the weekly update. I encourage everybody that watches the actual show, please watch the weekly update as well, because I went into some detail on the website and brought up the information of the appeal that we filed last uh, September in response to Judge Ross's decision August 29th that our case has merit. We have to file a a shorter NOCC, which we'll be doing. And uh, David, let's talk about what's going on with the courts. I know that you're experiencing yourself in these delays. We're experiencing in being able to get before the uh, Court of Appeal in a timely manner. So explain to people what the process normally is when you do an appeal. Well, the, the one principle for all lawyers seems to be what's called the adjournment game. And if they can, if it's not to their best interest to have a case heard, they will use a variety of techniques to make sure the hearing doesn't take place for an extended period of time. And um, normally when you file an appeal at the Court of Appeal, <clears throat> what you need to file is, the first thing you need to file is your notice of appeal, of course. And then within 30 days, you have to file what's called an appeal record. And the appeal record will contain all the relevant documents from the lower court. 
any affidavits that were filed, any transcripts that uh, from people giving evidence in the lower court, uh, any exhibits that were there, of course, um, any motions or applications in that trial and uh, and judgments and so on. All that would go. All those documents go into one thing called an appeal record. Once that is done. Um, then the moving party, the uh, the person that's made the appeal, it's called the appellant, um, they file what's called a factum, and that's the written argument. And the other party's got another 30 days for them to file their factum. And if there's more than one other party, they all have 30 days to file their written response factums. And then from there, the moving party usually sends a requisition or some form of instruction to the court and says, let's set it down to be heard. And Normally, that shouldn't take more than three, maybe four months tops, but usually around three months, somewhere in that area. And um, you get heard before a panel of three judges at the Court of Appeal. If the issue involved is extremely important um, and, or it's clarifying another case in the past, sometimes you can apply to get five judges. But 99% of the time, you, you get three judges. And then it's uh, it's set down for a hearing and everybody... Um, all the lawyers in that show up and uh, get their payday and so on, and it, it gets heard, and then the judges almost always reserve decision, and you get it later. So it shouldn't take more than three or four months to get this heard. And I think in your particular case, what's happening is the lawyers don't want it heard. So mm -hmm. they're telling the court, I'm not available here. I'm not available there. And we're not available uh, right up until the end of June. We're not available. And then, of course, the, the courts take July and August off at the Court of Appeal level anyway. They take uh, July and August off. And then they'll say, well, we're not available here. And these lawyers will work with each other. So if you've got four or five lawyers on the other side, they'll talk with each other. And one lawyer will say, I'm not free here. And the other lawyer will say, I'm not free there. And next thing you know, as uh, is happening in your case, you can't get it down for a hearing until sometime in the fall. And right. um, it's really frustrating, to say the least, to see that uh, they're, they're that type of um, cooperation with people to make sure it, it, you know, doesn't get heard or as long as possible. But it goes back to what a lawyer told me years ago. Right. And he said, the first thing you do if you don't want something to be heard is to deny it. Make sure it never gets heard. You do a motion to strike, as, as you uh, found out, and that happens very, very regularly. They'll do motions to strike um, or not to let the evidence on the record. If the evidence is not on the record, you lose. If the witnesses don't get there, you lose. So that's what they go for first, and there's a variety of, of techniques they'll try for that. If that doesn't work, then their second line of defense is to delay everything. Make sure it goes as long as possible so you ring up the cost for the other side in the hopes that they can't afford it and they eventually give up. Or if they do win, the time and effort wasn't worth it anyway. They'll, they'll be lucky to break even if they, uh, if they get that far. And the third thing that I added to that is I said uh, what the judges do now is they mischaracterize your arguments and your evidence. And if it all does get on the record, they will try and mischaracterize it in order to make sure you lose. So if I was to argue, hey, everybody, uh, I'm arguing the sun is yellow. And they would say, Mr. Lindsay uh, puts to the court that the sun is yellow. But what I really mean is, I interpret him to mean is that the sun is beige. And they'll proceed on that basis. But that's not what I put to the court. 
And that mm-hmm. that's a lot. Uh, right there is a lot of, you know, um, ideas as to what the courts do and what these lawyers are doing too. And in your particular case, yeah, these lawyers are delaying it as long as possible by working with each other to say they're free, they're not free, and vice versa to, to get it into right. the fall. And so that's why it's, yeah, that's why it's good to have this conversation, uh, David, to let people know, because we got a little squawk mob out there, you know, who are trying to say that our case was fully dismissed and that there's no merit and uh, that we're not going anywhere and that we're wasting people's money. And they have no idea how hard we're working and how hard Rocco is working. You know, he is trying to assert himself with the courts and demand a date to be heard. And there's only a uh, so much you can do. Uh, you know, we filed all of this uh, last fall and then into uh, December, and we were going to file our notice of civil claim. And then we thought, well, we'll wait till the Court of Appeal. But with the delays, uh, we're going to re-strategize and we'll let people know. Uh, but people don't understand even even that with a uh, an appeal, that's additional money that your lawyer charges. And it's not because they're trying to gouge you. It's a separate costs from the constitutional challenge. And I just want to thank, uh, you know, our members in our community. Because of it, we had a war chest and I was trying to be incredibly careful with our finances. And so we were able to cover those costs. Um, but I'm going to be reaching out to people in the near future and saying, please go to Action for Canada and uh, donate to our legal action because I want to make sure that um, our war chest remains full and uh, that we exceed it because we've also got other legal actions that we're going to be involved in with all this nonsense with school boards and um, some other things that I can't mention here just because of strategy. And uh, so we got to work together as a as a team on this. Uh, but I just want to let people know right out, we've been working very hard in the background and Rocco continues to do so. I said, we're in it to win it. We're up against incredible corruption uh, I, I, I believe these are, are murderers and, you know, that they're harming people. These are traitors to our nation and to the people of Canada. And all of us are putting ourselves out there to do this battle at a level. And um, I also want to ask that people would respect that we're not going to always provide all of the information because when we provide that information, we're being watched. Right now, there's individuals on this call who are recording and listening to every word that David and I are saying, uh, ready to use that as some sort of evidence against us. When I went to Kelowna last week on this trip, I spoke at a rally. And I then spoke at Pastor Art Lucier's church and I gave my testimony and a sort of a hoorah message. It was just a beautiful night. And I find out that, you know, they were recording me and then sending it to school board trustees because um, I'm speaking publicly about what's going on at school boards. And of course, these people have been operating at a level where they've had control of the scenario and now they're losing it nationwide. Citizens want these school boards, these school board members pulled. They want them removed and they want them replaced. And for good reason, because our kids are being harmed. We have records of harm. And I'm going to make a public appeal to people that if you have been harmed by SOGI or the Winsex Ed, 
please reach out to our chapters or at uh, call to at actionforcanada.com and provide us your impact statement. Provide us the details of what you and your family or your child have gone through because we believe legal actions are going to be commencing and every single school board that has been served a SOGI or a WinSex Ed notice of liability at one day could potentially be liable before the courts because they were warned that there was uh, risk and harm to children and they refused to act. And instead they doubled down and in support and tried to shut the concerns of parents out by taking control of the school boards. And uh, so anyways, that that's something that I want to encourage people. I also want to alert the good people of Saskatchewan that under the radar, the ARC Foundation has been very open that they want SOGI 123 nationwide. And so they are lobbying governments and the Saskatchewan government has approved it without uh, parental knowledge or the public's knowledge. And it will be implemented in uh, September. So in the legal background, we're fighting on many different issues. And so I would just appeal to you. I don't do that very often. Become a monthly donor with Action for Canada or make a one-time donation, but um, we're very serious about the business that that we're into. And okay, David, so thank you for that update. I hope that's helpful to people because I know they feel very discouraged if they don't hear the update and they don't understand the process of the courts, right? And what we are able to and what we have control of. Um, okay, so what I want to do now is I know that this has taken a little longer. My I apologize. My update was a little longer tonight, but sometimes that's going to happen because of the severity of what we're facing and how critical it is. People are taking their foot off the gas pedal right now because it's some it's we're moving towards summer. They have their freedoms to travel to the United States and you know they can do what they want, but they don't understand how the Bank of Canada and all the rest of it, the 15-minute cities, are all being done. This is all going on in the background, and we need everybody to keep the foot on the gas pedal throughout the summer and, and to be with us on board with this. And so, David, with that, part of what we're doing for the public, right, is to equip them, and knowledge is power. We've talked a lot about the Constitution and the Charter of Rights and now I'm really excited for your presentation on the coronation oath and uh, what an incredibly important document that is to our freedom. So I'm going to hand the floor over to yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, you know, years ago, if you remember when they were bringing out GMO foods, they had a term called Frankenfoods that they were using, and the media latched onto it, and it had such a profound effect. They uh, they really got lobbied in the background, and you don't see that word anymore. It just had such an effect that people were not buying their GMO foods, and similarly with the 15-minute cities, somebody came up with a really good word. I prefer to call them prison cities, and that's exactly what they are. And um, if they're not like in Oxford, where they're prohibiting you from traveling under penalty of fine or any form of punishment, then you are in a prison city. And that's what we need to start referring it to, I think, as well in the um, in the future. Now, I had the uh, wonderful experience of, of listening to Matthew Chuella uh, a couple of weeks back on your show, and he had absolutely awesome story to give on the doctrine, doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And decades ago, I remember telling government officials way back in, in Edmonton and Winnipeg, why are you following orders if you know something is wrong? And at that time, um, I got the usual excuse, we're just following orders, and you would try and talk to them, and 
it never seemed to get anywhere. So basically, I want to explain the nature of what we have in place for our government, and especially in relation to the coronation oath, and what that means for you, that you can sit back and tell the government, we simply are not going to comply. Um, Terenzio, do you have the, um, the ability, or do I have to share my screen with you? Um, yes, David. All you have to do is just share your screen in Zoom, and we'll take care of the rest. Okay. Sure, I got the right one. Great to have you back, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to hear you. Okay. Um, if everybody, awesome, thanks. If everybody can see the screen that we have here, I've said, and, and it's one of the most important principles that you can remember is that everything's the most important part of everything is the beginning. And especially in the legal sense, because governments, judges, lawyers, they all want to talk way up here. And as if, as if the bottom foundation has somehow been established already. And that is almost never the case. So let's look at the bottom foundation for our society, how it relates to civil disobedience, how it relates to um, government officials and bureaucrats telling the higher ups, we're not going to comply with your orders. And the legal, <clears throat> excuse me, and the legal and constitutional basis for that as well here in Canada. Um, the first starting point, of course, is that recognizing the supremacy of God in our Constitution. It's not only in the Charter, but it's in every single constitutional document in our history, going back to Magna Carta. And it's the longest standing principle in our law that God is supreme. And beginning on that basis, God created us free, and you have the power of free will. And in that case, you have a choice to make. Right off the bat, you could have no government at all, which is generally called anarchy, or you can have some form of a government. Anarchy, by the way, doesn't always mean people smashing windows and throwing Molotov cocktails everywhere and so on. Anarchy simply means you do not have a government. And without a government, you do lose not only structure, but you lose the foundation of law that is going to control the people in your society. Everybody just does what they want. And those can and will infringe on rights and freedoms of other people, and then you have no redress. So some form of government is generally to be acknowledged as, as being better. Once you recognize you have a government, then you've got two choices. You can have what's called an absolute government. And by that, I mean this. If God created you free, then there's only two ways for me or somebody else to tell you what to do. One way is by force. And that way is universally acknowledged as being wrong. It's, it's unlawful. It's an assault. It could be a variety of other criminal offenses and a variety of offenses under God's laws as well. So having an absolute government which is being forced on you is not an option. As we mentioned right here, it's simply not an option. Consequently, having a limited form of government is the best option. But what you want to do is make sure that the government you have has the limited smallest number of powers available to it to get the job done, whatever it needs to do, whatever department you're in. You don't want governments that can maximize their power because then you slowly lead into an absolute government. Consequently, if you're going to have a voluntary government, 
The only way you can do that is by some form of an agreement. In our law, going back to minimally 973 AD, that agreement is what's called the coronation oath. And you've got one person in charge, which is the monarch, and that contract is Blackstone, Halsbury, Coke, um, virtually every judge in England has ever commented is a contract. And it has to be. If you're going to put somebody in charge, you either have an agreement, which is a, con- a form of contract, or they do it by force. So you have to have a contract that's going to be in place. And that's it right here. That coronation oath, in our case, recognizes by the king the supremacy of God in our law, amongst other things. It recognizes that the king will comply with all our all previous customs um, that we have. That is our common law. That's why I've said for a long time, the myth that common law is changed incrementally by judges is a power shift by the judiciary to do what they cannot do directly and change the law. It's one thing to say you have freedom of speech, and today with all the methods, that freedom of speech encompasses all of them. It's another thing to say your freedom of speech is limited and you can't do something anymore. And yet that's where the judges are going. Consequently, you have a limited form of of government and they have the ability to pass certain laws called statutes in in, uh, provincial and federal senses. And you also have what's called fundamental laws. That coronation oath establishes the supremacy of God as the fundamental power or duty, as the case may be, with respect to the monarch. And they cannot give royal assent to any law that violates that. And if they do, this is the starting point for civil disobedience, where I'll talk about shortly, that you can refuse to comply with them. Not only because you don't like it, but because you got a contract and they're breaking that contract. Consequently, you can tell them, I'm not, constitutionally, you can tell them, I am not complying with that statute that you've passed, whatever it may be. Now, in order to do that, you need to definitively point to where in the Bible they are breaking God's laws or where they have taken away the common law. You, you can't swear to uphold all our customs and laws in the past and then go and give royal assent to break them. One is diametrically opposed to the other, of course. As a result, you've got what's called laws that are passed by the government. And as I talk about in our uh, webinar series, a law Fundamentally, if you ask somebody what is a law, they can usually give you examples, but they don't seem to be able to define it. A law is a command, and it's a command to do something, or it's a command not to do something. So in our law, we have limits on what commands the monarch can give. Serious limitations on what commands the monarch can give. And if no one's above the law, then neither is the monarch, and they cannot go ahead and break the law. If the monarch passes a law that does not break God's law, then it is binding. If it does break God's laws, then you are of the power to say, I'm not going to comply with your commands. So 
it's not just the question of whether a law or a statute is invalid. It's a question of does that statute comply with all the higher laws above it, including the coronation oath? And if it doesn't, then you can refuse to comply with it. And those basically, and I'm going to get into them shortly, are going to be the limits on, on the powers of the monarch. And if the monarch does try and give you uh, royal assent, you need to either answer to your conscience or you'll obey them and violate your own religious beliefs. In our law, because you have an agreement, <clears throat> excuse me, you can agree to have God as your law, for example, or you can agree to have an atheist, secular, humanist state. If you do that, then the law is going to be changed by, by man at, at any time they want. You don't have an immutable set of fundamental laws that remain there no matter who's in power and cannot be changed. These people will change it depends on their power structure. And if you don't believe me, look at what Pierre-André Paré said in the Quebec National Assembly, Assembly with Quebec under civil law. And he said, all is a privilege granted by the state. Your car, your house, your profession, in short, your life. And what the state gives, it can take back if you are not a docile taxpayer. That is the nature of virtually every other country in the world that is not under the common law of England. You don't want that type of a state happening. So that's not an option. And we have the Christian religion as the supremacy of our law. And it has been there for over a thousand years. And as Blackstone said, the common law, our Christian law has been trodden down. It's been broken on occasion, but people have always come back to it. Unfortunately, it's a circular thing. People get lazy, they come back, and they get lazy again, and they, they move from it, and then they come back again. It seems to be a circular thing, but notwithstanding, that is what happens. The fundamental basis of our common law is to do unto others as you would have done unto you and not to do unto others. How can you get a better system of law in the world? For freedom, that is. And people have come up and said, you know, Dave, the system's corrupt. The system is needs to be fixed. I don't believe the system needs to be fixed. I believe it needs to be tweaked. For example, we need to get rid of political parties, completely get rid of them. Um, they have been around for four or 500 years, and the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Parties do not do anything. Somebody gets into power on, on you know, benevolent promises and so on, and as soon as they're in power, they get corrupted. Or they get bought out by the money system in the background. Or they're compromised. Somebody goes up and says, hey, you know, while you weren't in power, we've got these pictures of you or these videos of you. And you're going to do what you're told or else. Or they'll get threatened or their families will get threatened or whatever it takes to bring them into line, unfortunately. So political parties are not the issue. And if they start raising issues about the usury money system, the banks will pull their loans in, and then the party's got no loans. It's got no money. And then the party collapses. So for a variety of reasons, parties are not the answer. So common law in various areas does definitely needs to be changed. No system of law is perfect, but the common law comes as close as possible to doing that, recognizing what God gave you, a freedom of choice. And this agreement, of course, will have at the apex, the king or queen, as King Chucky did recently, will be swearing in his oath 
oath of office, or I'm sorry, coronation oath. And underneath them, you've got parliament, you've got the municipalities, and you've got the legislatures. I want to clarify right now something for you on those three aspects right here. They're not only primary, their sole function, their sole power is to aid and advise the monarch. That's it. People think we voted them in and, and they can do whatever they want. They cannot. Their whole goal is to aid and advise the monarch. And if they tell the monarch to give royal assent to a statute that violates the monarch's law, they are required, the monarch, in Canada, vis-a-vis -vis the governor general and lieutenant governor, they are required to tell, the par tell parliament or the legislatures, we can't do it. So when you think about that, who is really in charge? It's not parliament. If it was parliament, they would simply pass it. And what they've come up with is a term called convention. Well, we just kind of agree in the background that the governor general is going to rubber stamp them all. Because parliament represents the will of the people, which is a myth. It does not. And of course, you've got all your government officials and judicial officers below them. If there's one thing that links all of these people together, it's what's called the oath. All of these people, all of them that fill these, these offices, all take oaths to uphold the coronation oath of the monarch. It's called an oath of allegiance and an oath of office. And they cannot do anything. They have no more powers than the monarch has, including the judges. When you look at the charter, for example, when uh, Queen Lizzie signed it in 1982, where did she get the power to sign it from? Number one, it's the only document in our constitutional history where the state has said these are going to be your rights and freedoms. Every other one has been us limiting the powers of the monarch, which is this should be the starting point because we were born completely free. We're just going to limit their powers more and more, not allow them to tell us what our rights and freedoms are going to be. And the starting point then is the coronation oath. And she got the power to sign that charter from the coronation oath. And when you look at the supremacy of God in the charter, that has to be the exact same as her uh, oath to uphold to the utmost of her ability the principles of the Protestant Christian religion in her coronation oath. Because she doesn't have the power to recognize in the charter any other god. She doesn't have that power. The king does not have that power. They're bound by their oath. And I'm going to talk about Chucky's oath here as well in a minute. Consequently, the maxim is here. All power, all power flows from the oath in Canada. Every single office. Municipalities are trying to get away from it. One minister in Quebec tried to get away from it. And he did, but only because, on a technicality, and only because people aren't enforcing it anymore. And that, that has to change. That fundamentally has to change. We cannot, the, the requirement for these oaths has been around since at least 1200. And they need to be maintained. Otherwise, these people will start bringing in other gods. Whether it's Allah or money or power, whatever their god may be, they will start bringing them in. Now, as you know, Chucky took his coronation oath recently, 
I'm going to uh, chat to you here a little bit about that. Give me one second. Let's bring this on the screen. Now, this is the Coronation Oath Act of 1688. And I go through everything I'm telling you today in our webinar series. Um, generally, it's about uh, two, four, six, six hours. We spend three, two hour shows going through everything on the oath. And clearly I can't get through all that today, but I'm just going to give you a rough synopsis. Now the coronation oath act says, and it opens by saying the oath heretofore framed in doubtful words, but for as much as the oath itself on such occasion administered hath heretofore been framed in doubtful words and expressions with relation to ancient laws and constitutions at this time unknown. To the end, therefore, that one uniform oath may be in all times to come to taken to come taken by the kings and queens of this realm, and to them respectively administered at the times of their and every of their coronation. What they're saying here is these kings in the past were trying to change the oath. And it was getting garbled, and nobody knew what should be in there. So they said, we are going to make one oath that every monarch will take in the future. And this is what that oath is. The archbishop will say to the king, will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the people of this kingdom of England and the dominions? This is going to be important. Thereto belonging according to statutes and parliament agreed and the laws and customs and stuff same. What are those laws and customs? They are the common law. Spooner wrote about it in the 1890s. He did a whole chapter in one of his books specifically on that very issue. And if they're going to swear to uphold our laws and customs, you can't go violating them or changing them. And you cannot give the power to the judges to go and start changing them either. And the, queen, the king shall say, I promise to so do. And this is old English language directly from the act. It's uh, not, They're not spelling errors on my part, right? And then the archbishop will say, will you cause or will you to your power cause law and justice and mercy to be executed in all your judgments? You don't want to get a parking ticket and go to jail for 20 years. So they have to, the judges who are agents of the monarch have to give law and justice and mercy. And the third one, Will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel and the Protestant reformed religion established by law? Now, let's stop for a second. What do those words mean established by law? Somewhere prior to the coronation oath, the people demanded and agreed with the monarch that the Protestant religion would be the religion for England, not Catholicism or the Catholic religion. Consequently, the Protestant Reformed religion, as recognized in the Coronation of the Act, already is the law. It's recognized by the law. And the, the, the monarch does not have the power to change it. And there's no amending formula in the Coronation of the Act. There's nothing in the Act that says the king can unilaterally change these terms and conditions on his own. He doesn't have that power. And neither does the archbishop. And it then goes on to say, will you preserve unto the bishops and clergy of this realm and to the churches committed to their charge all rights and privileges as by law do or shall appertain to any of them? And then the king will go, all of this I promise to do. They'll lay their hands upon the Bible and they will say the things 
I am here before promised I will perform and keep, so help me God, and then they kiss the Bible. That's a very short synopsis of it, but it's the most important. This is the oath. This is the promises to the people of what they're going to do. And by the way, laws and customs, you know what that includes? Yeah, it includes your property rights. And you know where property rights are traced back to? The Ten Commandments, where God said, thou shall not steal. How can you, how can you say thou shall not steal without presupposing in the first place that somebody owns the property? As of right, not a privilege. That's where it comes from. Now, this is what happened recently when the king got sworn in. The archbishop says, your majesty, the church established by law whose settlement you will swear to maintain is committed to the true profession of the gospel and in so doing will seek to foster an environment in which peoples of all faiths and beliefs may live freely. This is what the archbishop said to the, uh, to the king. He did not swear this, but he established this as a principle. Now, number one, the true profession of the gospel does not recognize all faiths and beliefs. As Tanya said, it doesn't recognize the God, God that we believe in, does not recognize other gods. And this is wrong. The archbishop had no power to insert this into the ceremony. He did not have the power at law to do it. It's not in the Coronation Oath Act, nor is it in any of the previous Coronation Oath ceremonies that have taken place. So that's the first thing I want to point out. Putting that in was wrong. Second of all, the gospel, the Protestant religion, the gospel, does not recognize other faiths and beliefs in other gods. This is a lie. So the archbishop is lying possibly committing deception or fraud at the very moment he's telling the king to obey the law. Now the king goes, puts his hand on the Bible, and the archbishop again says, will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and your other realms and territories to any of them belonging or pertaining to their respective laws and customs? That's not what the coronation oath said. Let me go back. It says here, right up at the top, govern the people of the kingdom of England and the dominions thereto belonging according to the statutes of parliament. Because at this time, parliament statutes applied throughout the whole dominion, everywhere. It applied throughout the realm. Now he comes along and he's telling the king to swear that he, that he will govern Canada according to our laws and customs. Well, what are our laws and customs? And by doing that, he is saying that he will govern according to what Parliament tells him to do. But our law is the other way around. He is the one that swears the oath, not Parliament. He is the one that swears the coronation oath to uphold God. By swearing this in, he has lied. They've taken a false oath that is not authorized by statute. And I want to further point out, the first time they changed this oath was done illegally in the 19th, I think it was King, King George, don't quote me, 1937, where they made similar changes. 
And there's a, a an excellent set of articles I go through in um, in our webinar series from Munag Gay, and she has done incredible research, pointing out the very same thing I told you. These people are changing the law at the very moment they're telling the king to obey the law. And what does that say about the priest, the archbishop, who's also lying, who has sworn an oath to God? This should say, to swear and govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and your other dominions and territories belonging, uh, and it should basically almost stay, stop at that, because the supremacy of God in Canada is the same as it is in England. And then he goes on to say, will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you to the utmost of your power maintain in the UK the Protestant religion? How can you maintain the Protestant reform religion when you're lying at the same time you're taking it? What faith are we to have in a king who's going to uphold the principles of a, of a law while he's breaking them at the same time? But you'll notice, despite the fact here where the archbishop says, in so doing, that the church will seek to foster an environment for other people's faiths and beliefs. The king does not swear that in to do that. This statement, this opening paragraph, is simply a statement by the archbishop. That's all it is. It is not the oath of the king. The oath of the king starts right here. Will you solemnly promise to swear and govern the peoples of the UK according to their realms and territories? That is where the oath starts. This here, although the archbishop did not have the power to do this, does not form part of the oath and is not legally or constitutionally binding. Period. And now when we get here, this is his oath to uphold the Protestant reform religion. This is what Chucky swore to. And he's required to do that. This oath does not say that to the utmost of your power, he will maintain the Protestant reform religion and all religions. He didn't swear to that. So although the archbishop made a false statement, Chucky never swore to it. It was not an oath. It was not part of the oath. I want to clarify that. Okay. And then he goes on to say, your majesty, are you willing to make, subscribe, and declare to the statutory ascension declaration oath. And he says, I'm willing. I, Charles, do solemnly and sincerely in the presence of God, profess, testify, and declare, I am a faithful Protestant, and that I will, according to the true intent of the enactments, to secure the Protestant and succession to the throne, uphold and maintain the said enactments to the best of my powers according to law. You can't, it's like having two people in a corporation with 50% power. Nothing will ever get done if there's conflict. He cannot agree to uphold all faiths and at, say, at the same time swear that he's going to give to the utmost and best of his powers, that he is going to give supremacy to the Protestant Christian religion. One is opposed to the other. But he swore this as part of his oath as well. So he is duty-bound to uphold the principles of the Protestant Christian religion. And insofar as uh, that is concerned, what is one of those things God has told us? You're not supposed to lie. So consequently, this whole ceremony 
is founded on fundamental lies this time. It was with Lizzie the Lizard and the King in 1937, but not to this extent. And we need to look at getting back to the original oath for, for several reasons. Number one, the Coronation Oath Act has not been changed since 1688. Consequently, they had no statutory power or constitutional power to change it. And number two, as Blackstone said, every time the common law has got trodden down or um, uh, has, has been beaten down, the people have finally come back. And that's what we're starting to do now is to come back. And we're starting to say, okay, that's it. We're not accepting any more changes, any changes. And you will get back to the original oath that you swore. All power flows from the oath. And this is Chucky's oath. All power that he has through his agents, the judges and the governor general and lieutenant governor, all come from this oath. All of it, including protection of your property rights. Again, I went over this. I just want to point it out that this is the oath that he's required to take according to the laws and statutes in Parliament and the laws and customs of same. That is our common law, and that is your property rights, by the way. And it's also mentioned in the Coronation Oath Act that the king is required to uphold our property rights in the opening paragraph. It's mentioned in there as well. And I go into a lot more detail in our webinar series about all of this. Now, once you know, and this gets to what, what um, Matthew Truella was talking about on the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Once you know what the king's powers are, what are you going to do about it? You're a cop on the beat. What are you going to do if you get orders from above that violate the laws of the monarch, the promises of the monarch in his oath? What are you, what are you going to do if you're a tax court official? Technically, I think you should resign. I don't think there is a way to be in the tax court and comply with God's laws at the same time. I don't think you can do it. But the point being is, working your way up the chain of command, you need to tell those higher up, because all government officials swear an oath of allegiance to the monarch and an oath of office, so they have no more powers than the monarch. And they need to tell those higher up the food chain, sorry, according to my oath, which is the source of all the power, I can't do what you're telling me to do. Not because I don't want to, not because I disagree, which may be true, but because I took an oath and the oath says I can't do it. And I can't break my oath and comply with your orders at the same time. That is the fundamental basis in our law, in our Canadian English law, for telling those higher up the food chain I cannot comply with your orders. It's based solidly in our constitution. It's based solidly in contract law. And these people need to know more and more that they have the power to say no and they should be doing that. One of the things I've, I talk about on a regular basis for years is the four ways to get justice. You have political, civil disobedience, you have the court system, and you've got war. And war is generally, of course, not an option for obvious reasons. Here, I'm just pointing out, you've got the courts on one hand. Now, the problem with the courts, you can do it yourself, as, as I do. It's incredibly time-consuming. And um, you learn a lot, but it, it takes a lot of time out of your life. Or you can get a lawyer, which is a lot of money. There are places for lawyers, especially some good lawyers. There are, and I have met some good lawyers over the years. 
Um, I've met lesser good judges, but there are some good judges out there as well. And then you got to look at the type of action. Is it a civil, criminal? Are you laying your own charges? Do you want an injunction, declaratory relief, peace bonds, prerogative relief? Is it a constitutional challenge? All of those get factored in as to what type of relief you're going to seek in the court system. The Human Rights Commission, I am not a believer in. As far as I'm concerned, they are there to give power to recognize people that are breaking God's laws. And I don't think the, the, the uh, human, I don't think that the monarch had the power to put into effect at least certain portions of the Human Rights Act. Nonetheless, it is there right now, and it deals with basically discrimination issues. You can also negotiate if you have problems. Christ said that there is going to be a spot for it to negotiate before they pull you, put you in jail and they don't let you out until you pay the last penny owing. It's quick, but there's no accountability that goes with it. The people that do it just get out and they do it again, right? And of course, as I said, war is not an option. So the best thing is peaceful civil disobedience. That is where your power comes from. And I've said this for decades now, say no and don't comply to them. And Richard Sullivan pointed out in the spirit of the common law, he said, if we owe a higher a duty to a higher power confers a right against the lower power. So if we have duties to God, then we've got rights against the state. And we can tell the state, I'm not complying because I've got more duties to a higher power. And the principle is recognized in our common law. You have to at some point answer to your conscience. You have to. Answering to your leader when you're giving un given unlawful orders means you're breaking your oath, which means you have sworn a false oath. And you did it either knowing you were going to do that in the future, which would be perjury, or you broke the oath, which could be a variety of other offenses, fraud, fabricating evidence, possibly. Okay. Etienne de la Boetti pointed out in 1548, phenomenal book. If you can get it, it was called um, The Politics of Obedience. It's a phenomenal book. It's not very long, 70 pages maybe, but it's an incredible read. And he points out from all these indignities, such that the very beasts of the field would not endure, you can deliver yourself if you try, not by taking action, not by doing violence, but just simply don't comply with these tyrants. And sure, there's risks. You may lose your home. I lost mine in the process years ago, decades ago. But ultimately, there's risks in everything. And if you reserve to, to, to serve them, then the only thing you will have is what they allow you to have. The objective is to say no to them anytime their laws break God's laws. And he goes on to say that I don't ask you place your hands on the tyrant to topple him over, but merely that you support him no longer. And then you'll see him fall over like a great pedestal that's been taken away and he'll fall of his own weight. If nobody supports the guy and he's sitting with 20 people and he says to his inner circle, go and do that. And they just stand there. He's lost. He's got no power. He's lost it all. And at that point, as Caesar said, once he found out Boutet was against him, he just died. And that was it. 
that's what people need to realize here. Nobody's asking you to kill anybody or even recommending it, but just say no, you will not comply with these people's orders. And finally, I point out Oscar Wilde's point that it's our original virtue of saying no. How do you expect change to happen? If you're telling people, I agree with the oath, it's part of our constitution, but I'm going to let you break it. Allowing somebody to break the constitution and complaining about it while you comply with it is not an answer. It's part of the problem. And consequently, you need to be able to tell anybody in our constitution who's breaking the law, you will not comply, no matter what level you are at, period. You simply need to tell them no. It takes somebody who can get rid of the fear element. And hopefully, you've got a family that will be supportive. Uh, a friend of mine told me 30 some odd years ago, he said, one of the problems with freedom is that, is that in a family, one spouse is in and one isn't. And that can be, that's still a problem today. But ultimately, somebody's got to make decisions not to comply with these government officials who are breaking the law. And this goes to all your justices of the peace, all your bureaucrats and officials that are getting orders to break the law, all the way up the chain of command to your politicians and to your governor general and lieutenant governor. That's what we need to hold them accountable with. As I said, I go through a much, much more extensive analysis on this. And um, as you can see on most of my slides here, everything is, uh, is where I get it from is quoted from so people can verify it. But look back at what I've, I, I've, I've mentioned to you tonight in our law. You know, having 350 MPs where an MPC has 100,000 constituents, but he's beholden to the party. So the, the constituents tell him not to do anything, and he votes according to the leader of the party. Your only power right now is to vote him out, but that could be four years later. And he does whatever he wants during those four years. We need to know that we will not support them at all in anything that they do, if that's the case. And we need to get rid of political parties because for the most part, political parties are run by tyrants who do not believe in God and are telling their people not to do it. What does that say about MPs who profess to be Christian and go and do what their leaders tell them to do over and above what their constituents are telling them to do? There's a serious, serious defect that's happening there in our political system as well that needs to be remedied. And I'm, I'm grateful for Tanya and all her work to get people into the school boards and into various levels of um, municipal law. And we did try here in uh, Kelowna to get some people in as well. And uh, we came pretty close for first time around. We came pretty close. I suspect the next municipal election, we will get some people into power because it's going to be a lot more people resigning then. And that's when we can start upholding God's laws in our political establishment as well. In conclusion, I simply want to mention that in Canada, you have a constitutional basis for the doctrine of the lesser magistrate that, uh, that Matthew, Matthew Truella pointed out. So very, very good in his own book and on his show a couple of weeks ago. And I wanted to instill in you the belief of where that comes from in our law. It's not just morally and ethically, but it's religiously, which is protected constitutionally 
not to comply with them. And um, on that basis, Tanya, thank you for having me on here tonight. I hope I, um, I was able to answer a bunch of questions. Absolutely. It remains the foundational document. And um, although changes were made, they were made illegally. And, and that's just not my opinion. That's opinion of many, many other people as well. And, and we've got statute to back it up. Consequently, it's something that I, I hope to work with you on in the, um, in the coming little while about getting something in the court that recognizes that that oath was illegal and has been since 37. And still, um, the, at least the part on the Protestant religion is still in there, virtually unchanged. So that part can be enforced with respect to anything that the government is doing. Um, all the drag queens, all the homosexual activity, all of that can be um, can be challenged simply on that basis uh, as well. And the Ontario Court of Appeal has already recognized that the coronation oath is the fundamental part of our constitution, and the courts cannot change it. Period. Right.
Well, when I think of war, I look kind of a, look at it a kind of an offensive type of manner. Self-defense of, of anything is certainly lawful. No, no questions asked. Um, the only thing the common law has always said it has to be reasonable. If somebody's going to steal a bicycle out of your yard, that doesn't give you the right to go and chop his head off, for example. Um, so it's always been a, a test of reasonableness under common law, which means there has to be an underlying purpose and it has to be proportionate. But for what these people in power are, are doing, um, I don't know if I have an answer to that. Um, on one hand, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm I think the, the, 
the issue about war that concerns me is that people can start off with really good intentions. And you have a war, they get into power, and as long as the money system, the corrupt money system is there, they're going to get corrupt very, very quickly as well. And the, the whole cycle just starts all over again. And that seems to be what history shows. People get into power, they get abu uh, abusive, and they get power hungry, and people finally revolt, revolt, they break down, they revolt. Somebody else gets into power and the whole cycle starts again. That is my concern, my real big mistake with, mistake with war. If somebody got into power and made the appropriate changes and you, you, you would have to change the money, you got to get usury out of the money system or, or all talk of, of sovereignty in, in God's name is futile because uh, the bankers will control the money system, they will control the people in power, they will control everything. And until usury or interest is removed from the money system, all talk of freedom is, is moot. So somebody needs to get into power, even if it's by war, and, and get rid of the money system and then start putting in place uh, principles of God's law again to go back. And as God had said many times in the Bible, for example, in Samuel, he said, what do you want a king for? You're free. And the people said, well, we want a king because they got one. And God said, OK, as long as your, your king obeys my laws, you will prosper. And if he doesn't, you will suffer. And take a look around you today as to what's going on in our society, just even over the last 50, 80 years, where um, even Lizzie, she, uh, as much as she professed to be religious, she didn't uphold God's laws and never enforced them or did anything. And look at the situation we're in today, right? And we've got some work to do, and I think we're going to come up in, in a force, as we are, and because we're getting the support of the people, we can tear this down. So I just want people to have hope and take heart, but we need you involved. We need you actively involved. Okay, our yep. friend Dan Vachon has asked a question. Is that people keep saying the government works for us. Is that, in fact, true? Um. I think in order to answer that, you need to look at their oath. Who is their oath to? Their oath is to the monarch. So although you vote them in, you're voting them in for them to make your concerns known to the monarch. And that's, that's constitutionally how it's working. And they are there to serve your interest to the monarch. And they have forgotten that. They don't do that. They don't say, hey, uh, I got 100,000 people, 99,000 are saying no. Therefore, uh, I'm not voting for this. I'm recommending to the monarch not to put this into uh, this statute into power and give it royal assent. And I'm voting against it. They don't do that. You could have 99,000 voting, uh, telling you to vote against it, and they will vote with their party who, who happens to go along with it. That is a serious concern. So to answer your question, Look at the nature of the uh, parliamentarians, the uh, MPs and MLAs. They're there to aid and advise the Maj Her Majesty, or and now His Majesty the King. And they're there to aid and advise the monarch with what your views are and the views of, your, uh, of all their constituents, not what the party mm -hmm. leader is telling them to do. Right. And it all 
bottom line is it comes down to the fact that they need to be upholding biblical principles. And yep. so you can pretty much bet that since Justin Trudeau came into office, what was one of the first things he did, my friends, is that he thought it was important to lower the age of anal sex from 18 to 16. Well, you know what? That's against biblical principles. So that could be struck. And it's just a matter that we've got to get people into office. Bill C-16, allowing biological men into uh, women and children's spaces, you know, that can be struck. Bill C-75 and lessening the crimes against sexual offenders. All of this needs to be overturned according to the fact that Canada is 100% supposed to be governed by biblical principles. And that's why all those people that have been beating me up for years, we're a secular nation, Tanya, and we're a multicultural nation. It's like, you know what? You need to reconsider your position on that. Uh, where mm -hmm. have you known that, uh, you know, a homosexual is safer in one of the 56 Islamic majority countries? Take a look what's going on over there to Christians, non-Islamists, and to homosexuals. Take a look at how, you know, what their rights are in uh, many countries around the world. And, uh, you know, even atheists aren't safe in Islamic-majority countries. And, and so people, I've been appealing to them. I'm hoping they're beginning to get it, that I'm not calling as much as I'd love for everybody to come to know the Lord and have, you know, eternity with Him. Um, you know, if you're an atheist, you have free will and you're making that decision. But I'm just saying that by embracing the fact that we have godly prim principles, that gives you a much safer environment and much more peaceful environment that you would have an opportunity to live in than anywhere in the world. Okay, so um, do we really need a monarchy at all? The Bible seems to warn against asking for a king, you had just mentioned that verse, and instead exhorts us to simply follow God's commands. I agree, um, but God did give them a king, and ironically, even Christ uh, is referred to from the lineage of the, uh, the house of David, King David, all the way through the uh, to the New Testament as well, right? So I think there's still a recognition by God. People wanted a king, and God kept his word and said, you'll have one. And he said, if you, your king violates our laws, you will suffer. And if you, if, if you don't, mm -hmm. you will prosper. So I think it's, it's also, it, it should be fundamentally easier to hold one man accountable than trying to hold 330 people in parliament accountable to do what you want to vote because everybody's interest in the, in the, the country are going to be different. So if you have one leader who has limited powers, it in law should be easier to hold that person accountable than a whole government who says to you, we're going to give you your rights and freedoms and, and we'll, we'll tell you what they are. And, um, We'll decide in the future what they are. So one person is easier to hold accountable than hundreds. And um, I, I believe it's much, much better. It, it's what's called a Republican monarchy because the principles of God and, and so forth in that oath form part of the, uh, the law that cannot be changed. And that's essentially what a republic like in the States is. They have laws that the government cannot change. Period. They're there, and you cannot change them. And that's the same in our monarchy. It's a Republican form of monarchy because being limited, the monarch does not have the power to remove God from the equation without breaking the law right. in the process of doing it as well.
Okay, so there's a couple of similar questions coming in right now as well. Uh, one was, how can this oath be used legally by the average person? And then sort of into the next one, how can the coronation oath be enforced in our nation? Should the king be petitioned to bring justice to the ungodly laws and policies they keep passing that violate our principles? Um, I was just going to talk about the governor general, but it says, does the governor general have to hear the plea of the people about this? I know that we've been talking about this for quite a number of years, right? And the governor general was always, you know, that uh, block that's in the way of uh, appealing to the monarch. Yeah, the governor general is put in place as the representative for the monarch here in Canada under the V&A Act, now the Constitution Act of 1867. And... The powers of the governor general are limited by the powers, of course, of the monarch. You can't delegate to somebody more powers than you have. You don't have that ability to do it. As a result, um, the governor general can only can only be accountable or is needs to be accountable as well to the people for when they're going to be giving royal assent, that royal assent to legislation. Sorry. So with the uh, the monarch in place, and I, I think I forgot part of that question. Can you repeat that? Sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's okay. Are you good? Yeah. Okay, it says, how can the coronation oath be enforced on our nation? Should the king be petitioned right. to bring justice? And then does the governor general have to hear the right. plea? Part of the problem with that and, and how to holding them accountable, in my opinion, it's twofold. Number one, you need to live it in your own life. And by that, I mean, say no to every single example where the government is is breaking God's laws in the Bible. Don't comply with it and complain about it later. That's not the solution. That's the first aspect. If if every Christian in Canada did that, we wouldn't be here where we are today. If 10% of every mm-hmm. Christian did that, we wouldn't be where we are today. Because they've been brainwashed to think that it's law, you have to obey it and uh, fight it out later. And that's simply not the case. The other aspect of that is, and it, it's difficult for for majority of people, a financially and b through knowledge. A lot of people are have gone into court, and they don't know anything about court procedures, and they don't know anything about the nature of courts. For example, if you're charged with a provincial uh, criminal court offense or a provincial offense. And you go to court and you want to say, hey, uh, that statute's unconstitutional. It violates freedom of expression or whatever. Um, The provincial court judge does not have the power to strike the legislation. They don't have that power. Only a superior court judge has. Consequently, all you can do is make the challenge and tell the judge, because it's unconstitutional, you can't enforce it. And most people don't know that. And they get into court and they, they're trying to get the judge to rule it unconstitutional, but the judge doesn't have the power to do it. And it's important to know how to present your your case to the court on the oath and how you're going to put your evidence and, and arguments to the court. It's something that's not for the faint of heart because it is time consuming. And it's something that you need somebody with legal experience to, to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Finally, you know, I called the um, 
Ontario Christian Lawyers Association a couple of years back. And I said to them, I, I want to come out there. I want to meet with some of your, your uh, board. And I want to show you where the supremacy of God really is in our constitution and see who will, will in, uh, you know, who I can talk to that will help take this to, to court if you want. And I said, I have the ability to do it. But I said, I personally don't have anything in the court at that time to, to go after. And uh, they called me back a few days later and they said, none of, the other, none of the lawyers want to have anything to do with it. And I said, what? They're, they're Christians. Why would they not want to see the supremacy of God where section one of the charter doesn't apply? They hung up on me. Wow. And, and I was so, so disappointed. I thought this is a bunch of Christian lawyers who have mm-hmm. sold themselves out, fear, whatever, uh, or given in to something. But it, it's really, um, I mean, the law is there. And as long as you have that belief and you know, and knowledge, as you said earlier, knowledge is power, Tanya, and you have that knowledge, that will empower you to stand up against these people um, and share that information with others. Because going to court is not an option for most people. They don't know the procedures. They don't know the powers. They don't know the jurisdiction of the court, what they can and cannot do. They don't know how to draft documents. They don't know the difference between evidence and argument and, and on it goes. Um, it's going to be very, very difficult. And the other thing is we need to find a case that they cannot get out of where there's no discretion. Mm-hmm. So something, for example, um, or God has completely banned homosexuality, then you need to find a statute that authorizes it. That would be something to char- challenge really, really strong. You've got a cut and, cut and dry case. There's no ambiguities. There's nothing. And you would win, in my opinion, if it was done correctly. But going to court on ambiguous cases where it's kind of in, kind of out a little bit, or uh, it doesn't totally apply, or there's other issues. We want to pick the strongest case possible. Mm -hmm. Because if it's the strongest case, that will involve the least amount of evidence to prove it. And then you get in, and the law is already there to back us up, and I've got all the law on it. So then you you would get in on that basis. So. Well, I think that moving forward, uh, because I know we were going to you know, apply some of this reasoning to the courts, but with King Charles coming in, we weren't sure if he was going to sign the oath or what kind of changes he was going to make. But I right. think this is something that we're going to start to need to assert in the courts. And uh, again, you know, we need to demand this justice and uh, to present it properly. I, it's just so unbelievable, the kind of things that are going on right now. And um, there's a law firm in British Columbia called Harrison Company, and they've become, you know, this pitbull law firm, this bullying law firm for the school districts. And so I'm just hearing about, I knew uh, about this several months ago, but a gal had served a notice of liability, a SOGI notice of liability to the board in Vernon, British Columbia, and she was issued a no trespass order. And this is not against the law, to issue a notice of liability. It's just a document to say, to to give somebody notice, to inform them that what they're doing is causing either harm or is illegal. And in most of the situations regarding the jab and what's going on with SOGI, it's, it's both. 
it's it's harmful and it's illegal and and so i found out today that there's these you know court actions and harrison company is involved harrison company they should be so ashamed of themselves like when all of this becomes public this these letters i haven't made them public yet i'm i'm going to determine what i'm going to do with this but they're using taxpayers money to try to cause people fear and bully them into silence and into submission and uh, not to provide them, you know, their guaranteed right to come to a school board meeting and express their concerns and advocate for the children. And I know the school board superintendent in the area, she used to be in the Kootenays and she's the one two years ago that was on video on her social media promoting kids to come and get the jab you don't need your parents' permission. Just uh, gather your friends, get your friends together like it's a jab party and gather your friends. Anyway, she got so much backlash, she had to take it down. And I understand she's now the superintendent in Vernon. And uh, her name is in some of the court documents along with the board. And there just needs to come to a point where we're going to be able to have the ability to turn this around. And it is going to be need to be done at the civic, civic level, level, the voting level. We need to really raise up large numbers of people within the community uh, to vote at the, in the next elections. Um, but how would you, somebody asked a question here, this will maybe one or two more questions, then we'll bring this to a close. Sure. But can the people ask, for an elected official to be fired, or can a citizen have someone arrested for violating God's law and violating our oath? Well, I wouldn't be asking anything. Asking By asking, you're seeking permission. You're seeking their fiat um, benevolence. Uh, please do this. I would be demanding, number one. you Demand in a legal sense means you have a right to something and you're exercising that right or a claim to mm -hmm. something. And I would be demanding that Right off the bat, I would not be no pleasantries involved, right? And if the MP, it, it, like I'm thinking, could you get a writ of prohibition prohibiting your member of parliament from voting on a bill that violates God's laws as set out in the Bible? So say, for example, Parliament wants to pass a law, because right now there isn't, I, my understanding is there's no law on abortion in Canada, but say Parliament wanted to pass a law mandating that uh, abortion is legal in Canada. And that bill was going through Parliament. And you contact your MP, and your MP says, no, I'm going to vote for that. Um could you get a writ of prohibition on the basis that abortion violates the biblical principles that the, uh, that he swore to? In my opinion, I think you could, but you would. It's something that you would need your legal argument done and ready to go first, because bills will be passed in a month to six weeks. You don't have a lot of time to start drafting arguments on that on that basis, and consequently, if you can get your arguments done in advance, and then. Um, have the evidence ready. Here's your correspondent. The correspondents, they said they're going to do this in any event, and they've done it in the past. So you've got them uh, voting on bills in the past that break God's laws. I think you stand a good chance of going in and get a writ of prohibition on them. Um, I think what they would do is they would come up and try and get it adjourned or put off until the, uh, the issue is decided. 
but uh, ultimately, I, I I think that's that's one way. Legally uh, speaking, you could uh, possibly get them to stop doing what uh, what they say they are going to do to violate God's laws, because you cannot swear an oath to uphold God's laws in their oath of allegiance and oath of office, and they have no more powers than the monarch has, and then openly and brazenly come up and say uh, you're going to violate it. And, and yeah. expect that no no legal action is going to happen as a result. And it would be no different if they said that they were going to go out and actively say that I'm going to go rob a store. Putting mm-hmm. aside the fact that it's a criminal code offense, it violates God's laws that they swore to uphold as well. So you could, that's something to consider is getting some sort of injunctive relief uh, prohibiting them from, from doing that. That's an option. Right. I, I- you know, I would imagine that what's going through my head is going through the viewers' heads as well, is that if we can't get Justin Trudeau removed with all the ethics violations and, you know, the criminality of of uh, his actions, how could we expect, you know, to get somebody removed at the civic level? And I think that's where it comes back to if it's a force of people uh, that are coming together. Because as you know, I hope everybody's heard that there was, oh, just that horrible, was her name Ashby or uh, the school trustee in the Catholic school board in Ontario who had made all those uh, racist comments and derogatory comments about white people. And there was so much backlash that she resigned the other day. And that to me is as effective of trying to charge somebody. And, you know, we need to uh, rightfully oppose these individuals uh, because they are using their position to assert authority they don't have. And unless we bring them into check with the backlash, uh, they didn't sign up to become a school board trustee or counselor, uh, you know, for all of this opposition. They want their cushy job and to get their paycheck and uh, obviously to assert their agenda. And we do have the power to, uh, you know, disrupt that. And I see that it's happening. And I know just in closing, because I think we need to close, this has been a long session, is that people have asked about the lane of private informations, which we were going so Mm -hmm. hard on uh, starting a year and a half ago, all the way into last year. And we're still pursuing that, but we're not promoting it as actively because the uh, courts, the judges, I'm sorry to say this out loud, I'm going to say it, are spineless. And we have solid cases in showing that an employer has committed extortion and intimidation and they're adjourning the cases. They're they're not proceeding with them. And so rather than take on any more cases right now, I won't publicly say, you know, uh, what the strategy is, but just know that uh, we are taking further steps and that as soon as uh, there is breakthrough, people are going to hear about it. So just make sure that, you know, you're ready to go. This is all new to us. We're trying desperately to save jobs and lives, and uh, sometimes, you know what? Maybe one out of uh, one out of eight things of our efforts is going to work. But we're, we've got a very good track record in in uh, the notices of liability working, and these uh, private informations, these criminal charges, have applied a lot of pressure, and the government is hearing from Canadians and stating, "We're on to you. We know what you're doing is criminal." And as soon as a judge, we're asking judges, we're calling on you to be brave and to set the pace probably for so many other judges that want to do the same, but they're just too afraid to be the first. And and so we'll keep you posted on that. Uh, Terenzio, Can could I- you bring up David's? Oh, yeah, sure. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify something. Yep. It's, it's not so much the judges, it's the crown. <clears throat> 
The crown okay. is coming. The, the crown has what's called a two-step charge approval process. All charges that get approved by the crown have to comply with one of these two steps. The first is whether there's a likelihood of success at trial. And the second is whether it's in the public interest. The crown is coming up on all our charges right now and staying them. And they're not only staying them, let me rack up. They're staying them before you get to your process hearing, your screening hearing that has to take place. So they don't even have the evidence to be able to determine if the charges meet their two-step approval process. They don't even have the evidence because they're coming in and staying it before the evidence gets on the record. And they never used to be able to do that until amendments were made a few years ago in the criminal code to allow them. That's the problem is the crown right now. They are covering up for all these criminals who have committed criminal offenses. And I hope to get that back before the court. One of the things we're looking at is um, with one of the government officials that we're looking at charging in the next little while. I don't want to give too much out right now, but I can tell you it is not something we've given up on. You have a right to lay the charge. And if the crown is going to stay it, they should have a basis at law or fact for doing that. And they're not doing it. And they're not even given reasons. And that's one of the things that I want to bring before the court at some time, sometime when I, as soon as I can get away from all the other legal stuff that they swamp me with, is to get an order from the court that if the Crown is going to stay charges, they need to give legal detailed reasons, number one. And number two, they should not be able to stay charges before you get the evidence on the record. And mm -hmm. um, we need to look at that. And we, we're still looking at laying more criminal charges to, um, later this year. I'm working with somebody on the island on that. But, uh, yeah, it's something that I, um, fortunately, I can't have the time to be just doing everything right now, of course. I'm just swamped already with this petition to try and get our rallies banned. But it's something mm -hmm. that I want to emphasize. Has uh, the, the criminal charging procedure has a lot of merit. We've just come up against the really serious criminal Crown Prosecution Service, who are corrupt. And they're the right. ones that are trying to make sure it doesn't get on the record. And we need to get around them. And we will eventually. But you know what? You're in a war. As you said, it's a psychological mm -hmm. war. It's a different type of war. And um, we need to, you know, get them. And it, it's just going to take some time. But it will happen. They, they yeah, can't thank be you for covering it all. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to say thank you for clarifying that regarding the judges in the crown and uh, where the obstacle is there. And David, can I encourage people who still want to lay criminal charges against their uh -huh. employer to hold off, make sure that you have all your information together and that there is no limitation because these are uh, criminal offenses. These are indictable offenses. So you know how some people, if they're going to lay a complaint or do something they have uh, a year time frame within it, to do that if within, it's a summary conviction but, offense yes if it's indictable or hybrid they have unlimited time but if it's a strictly right. a summary conviction they have 12 months okay and in, in ex extortion and intimidation are indictable offenses correct they're they're what's called hybrid they can go by uh, indictment or summary so if it's over 12 okay. months, you can proceed by uh, by filing an information on them, and it'll just proceed by as an indictable offense. Okay, excellent. Because I know some people are panicking, thinking, oh, my time is running out. I'm actually going to read Les Prez had put in the uh, question, have you ever thought or done this? When in court, invoke the Bible as the law of the court and give God supremacy and jurisdiction. I have written to the court's uh, stating this and they refuse to communicate or give me a court date. Every court room has a Bible. The Bible is our sword. We are David showing up to battle against Goliath. 
David used the sword provided to him, just like the Bible, just a sword sitting there waiting to be used. And for those people who are not Christians, um, the the Word of God is uh, like it talks about putting the on the armor of God, and the Bible is the sword of or no, sorry, it's the sword of the Spirit, actually that I'm thinking of. And then there is the Word of God. Okay, so what do you have to say about that? Um. It all comes down to the procedure because if you just walk in claiming uh, supremacy of the God, of God, the judge is simply going to believe that you have a faith in God that's protected under the charter, but that doesn't give you the right, for example, to murder somebody based on on your religious beliefs. They're not going to the coronation oath because most judges don't even know about it, and mm-hmm. it all comes back to what I said earlier about how you raise it with the court. And on what basis you're going to raise it. You can walk in and and you can say, you know, I'm here in God's name and I'm here on the basis of the supremacy of God in our law. Um, But if you've been charged, for example, with murder, um, it may or may not have any relevance to the charge. On the other hand, if you've been charged with something that violates God's laws and they don't have the power to make that law in the first place, then it would be relevant. And you need to be able to plead the coronation oath to do that. (laughs) <laughs> was I, that? I got the message. Uh, did did you hear message. that? All right. That, yeah, that was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the lights are going out, David. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, okay. Thank you, David. And I was just going to ask, Terenzio, could you please bring up David's website? And uh, this is David's book that we're talking about, uh, The Annotated Criminal Charging Procedure in Canada. David has written one of the only books in Canada on how to lay criminal charges uh, against another individual without going through uh, the police straight to the Crown. And um, it's brilliant. We've had webinars with uh, David. You can go to David's website. Is there... There's something going on. Sorry with the about music that, there. David. Right. You must That's have a, right. a video that pre-plays here. That's what it is. Sorry about that. That's what it is. Down at the bottom, I've had that happen before. <laughs> Got to be a good video. And that's David's website. I would encourage everybody as well uh, to support David. And I'm going to ask you to support David financially as well. David is fighting um, a huge um, uh, agenda uh, against him with the city of Kelowna. As well, there's a hotspot, I'm telling you, in Kelowna, many places across Canada. But David has been committed to rallying, which is our constitutionally protected right. And uh, they've got a petition to end the rallies. And uh, David is representing himself. And he has been going hours and hours and hours, day after day, preparing for this. But but this is on behalf of all Canadians. And most people do not know the uh, extent to the work that David has done on behalf of all of us. So uh, again, thank you for that, uh, Terenzio, for bringing the screen up. And so again, uh, Sheila, we will make sure that the donation button for David will be in the description of this video. And as well, we will we can pop it into, I think Sheila's already done it on the uh, chat. Okay, my friend, thank you. That, like I said, that was not uh, that was a huge topic tonight to take care of, and I, mm-hmm. I hope that uh, people feel very well informed. I'm actually looking forward to some of the legal arguments moving forward using the coronation oath. I, I think yeah. that uh, there's a lot of power in that. So time will tell. All right, it's thank the you. Do you have any words in closing? Yep. It's Do you have any words in closing? That's it. I'm just grateful for all that. And um, the only thing I want to let people know, if the government wins on on what they're trying to do to shut down rallies, every municipality in BC is going to shut down political protests. 
on the, on the streets mm-hmm. and in the parks. They will use bylaws to shut it down, and that's what they're trying to do. So there's a lot at risk, not just for us, but for every single person who has been at protests or rallies or, or street marches anywhere in BC. And once it's here, they will start moving into other provinces. So it will eventually affect everyone in Canada. And once they've taken away the ability to protest on the street, and as one media guy here told me, they were called by the BC government and said that nobody against COVID could get a platform in their media. So they've taken away our ability to talk in the media. They, then they're going to try and take away to talk on the streets. And then when they start taking rights and freedoms away, there'll be nobody to protest because they won't allow you on the streets to do it and get public visibility. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a, a critical, critical case that's going to affect um, everyone in BC and eventually probably everyone in Canada. Yeah. Yep. So um, I want to reiterate, David is uh, using all of his time day and night to uh, take care of these matters, plus help so many people. Uh, It's not, we don't refer to it as protesting, but the peaceful gatherings of going out and people coming together and there being speeches and talks and hugs and booths and uh, just, you know, just a one... Yeah, just a wonderful time. I, I'm still going out. I didn't know if D- David was trapping me. I went there a week ago and spoke, and I'm, uh, you know, I know that all of this is going on. I'm like, is this a trap? <laughs> Tanya Gaw was that that uh, gathering with David Lindsay. Uh, but yeah, no, I'll gladly go out and do this, uh, even if they pass uh, pass this kind of bylaws, uh, because it's in violation of our rights. And so we're just going to keep fighting the good fight. I'm so glad to be in this with you, David. And again, thank you for coming and sharing this evening with us. All right. Thank you very much, too. I appreciate it. All right. Well, next week, as I mentioned, Dr. Ann Gillies will be joining us again, and she is going to be talking about the dangers of affirming gender dysphoria in children. Uh, We already have a good idea of that, uh, but Ann has also a new book coming out. We're going to look forward to that, and in the weekly action I'm preparing, we are going to be finally providing the video about what took place in Mission in January and in February, the Mission School Board decided to ban Action for Canada. Um, it was unjust, it's unlawful. We're gonna be exposing this and we're going to, uh, really, is it a school board or is this a fast, fascist uh, dictatorship going on in our school boards right now? And I think we need to take this kind of business seriously. So be sure to join us next week. And then again, if you just want to bring up the Bible verses, I'm not going to go uh, deep into this. I'm going to encourage you um, each to go and read uh, this section of scripture. And it talks about uh, the Ten Commandments. Google the Ten Commandments and read them. And as I encouraged in the weekly update, I'm going to reiterate here God's laws, those Ten Commandments, those principles from what what we are to live by are good, honest, upright, moral principles and values. And when uh, communities and countries are living by godly principles, they prosper. When families know that a marriage is forever and uh, children and neighborhoods prosper, it's advantageous. All right. It's good principles under the Bible of uh, not stealing and not lying and not cheating and not murdering. I could live by that. All right. And the second one, uh, Trenzio. Again, I'm going to just mention again in Deuteronomy 28:15 that it's in Deuteronomy. Oh, what was the last one? Was it 17:5? Somebody remind me. 
of the one that I just read. Okay, Deuteronomy 5, 1 to 22, sorry about that. And so now we're in Deuteronomy 28, 15 and 16. And it just really talks about that, you know, when we don't honor God's laws, he loves us so much, but just so you love your children, just, just compare that, make that comparison. For those of you who have raised children, you love them, so you discipline them. You teach them right from wrong. And eventually they move out and they have free will. And the Bible says, teach them in the way they should go so that when they get old, they won't depart from it. Some of them, you know, they go through that season of rebellion. And, and that's for many just a, a normal way of, uh, you know, becoming their own person. But if they were to continue that and completely in their free will, remove themselves from God, then God sits back and he waits. He loves them, but he allows them their free will to make their decisions as he does with each one of us. But he loves us so much, he wants us to abide by his rules. And, uh, and as you, as a good parent, would have consequences for your kids stepping out, because you want them to be good human beings and not end up in jail, God has consequences for us too. And De- Deuteronomy says that these decrees I am giving you today, you know, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you um, if we don't listen to what God has to say. And we are suffering those consequences in this nation So we need to get on our knees and we need to pray and we need to do our part uh, to bring justice, righteousness, and godliness back into Canada. All right. Thank you. I'm going to look forward to seeing you all next week. God bless you and God bless Canada.
I'm going to say God bless you 